All right, Colossians 3, beginning at verse 20. Oh, in interesting too, I didn't orchestrate things so that we would be reading in Ephesians 6 this morning while I'm preaching on Colossians 3. I thought that it did shake out nicely though. Um, for those of you who aren't always here, we just we read through a book of the Bible to open our service, and we happen to be in Ephesians 6 this morning. <clears throat> um, Colossians 3.20 says something very similar to Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, <clears throat> work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ." Most of this text is clearly directed at Christians uh, who have some understanding of and appreciation for what we get in believing the gospel. This inheritance, this promise of eternal life, this rewarding of whatever obedience we engage in on this side of eternity is not something we're looking for tomorrow. So we work hard at <clears throat> whatever we've been called to do, not necessarily expecting that as a direct result, we'll enjoy, you know, we'll reap all the rewards of that hard work. We live in a sin-fallen world where everything's jacked up, and a lot of times what you get as a reward for your hard work is grief, right? Not to, I'm not, and we're not like, well, I guess that's probably just what we should expect. I don't mean that's the attitude that we have, but we're frank in, in evaluating these things. Thanks, Frank. Uh, and, and don't try to deceive our own hearts into having false expectations, Right? Yeah, so to begin this morning, I think we have to talk about authority and obedience because, I mean, these aren't really things that our culture understands. Um, it's certainly not things that our culture appreciates, and, and that's not even me saying, but at church we do, because... I'm not sure we do either. I'm just saying as a people, I think we struggle in the authority and obedience department. So um, <clears throat> what the Bible tells us is that obedience for human beings is not our instinct. It's not our natural bent as people to want to be obedient. And the reason, the scriptures say the reason that it's not our instinct to be obedient is because early on in the creative uh, narrative, sin happened and broke everything. Um, so we don't really want to obey. We want to do the opposite. To illustrate it, and I'm going to go quick, right, just for the sake of time, to illustrate it, um, I always think about this in terms of taking out the trash because this is a prank that I like to play on my kids. On the rare occasion that I see them about to engage in the act of taking out the garbage, I immediately tell them to take out the garbage because it, it, it's just a great illustration of my, my whole point here. When you're about to do something, like you've, you've made the first motion towards doing something and somebody who has authority in your life tells you to do the exact thing that you were about to do, immediately you no longer want to do it. 
right? Because it's not in our nature to be obedient. Um, the rebellious instinct that you possess, and this isn't like supposed to be a false comfort, it's just reality. The rebellious instinct that you possess is a genetic disorder. That's what it is. Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and then death spread to all through sin, uh, I got ahead of myself. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam until Moses, who received the written word, the law, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. All right, so what, what Romans 5, which I just read, is saying is is that, that genetic disorder reality, that Adam and Eve were capable of perfect obedience the way that God created them. We have no idea what that's like. <clears throat> we don't know um, because they were also created capable of disobedience. And if you believe the Genesis narrative, which I do, what happened is they chose to sin. They broke God's law. Yeah? And the moment that that happened, they lost the ability to be obedient perfectly. So through this act of disobedience, our first parents invited the curse of sin onto themselves and all human beings and then like plunged the rest of humanity and all of creation into a broken state. So the way I always say this to you guys is, and gals is nothing works quite the way it's supposed to. And that's our experience. And like, like the best day you've ever had, a couple of things at least went wrong, Right? That's because of the curse. Things don't function the way that we want them to. Now, the curse as it applies to the human condition can probably best be understood if we look at it in terms of an injury. Um, so if you have a catastrophic injury and like you end up losing most of one of your legs, you're not necessarily wheelchair bound if you've got two arms and one good leg and you get a prosthetic and you like rehab really hard, you'll probably still be able to get around. And if you wear pants, you might even be able to get around in such a way that most people won't even know that you're injured, right? Um, but you'll never be able to run as fast as you could if you had two fully functional legs, right? Because your natural ability has been changed. I mean, oh, what if I get one of those blade things? Okay. It'll be, it'll be weird, though. I, you'd probably be better off with two of them. So you got one of those and a leg, and you're, like, doing this thing. You're not going to be as quick. That's all I'm saying. Uh, but you will still have the human urge to run. And those of you who are like me, who are like, I do not absolutely ever have the urge to run. If something frightened you enough or you needed to move to preserve or protect life quickly, the instinct to move quickly would still exist within you. You just wouldn't have the ability. So this is the way it is with the, the sin nature that we now have. 
minus there's no way to rehabilitate yourself, right? And there's no prosthetic that you can put on a, a, a jacked up soul. You have still the instinct that, well, no, you don't. The desire kind of to obey, but you lack the ability to do it. It's like a limb got removed and try as you might, you can't be perfectly good because at the end of the day, the truth is we don't really want to. It just feels like sometimes like we do. So the majority of people, what they do in light of, of the fact that it's, it's in our nature as creatures to disobey, when you find out that there is a, a countermanding commandment to obey, you have to do something with that reality. You can't just... Like pretend like you'd never heard before that there is a God who gives commandments. If, if, if it's in our nature as creatures um, and we have the commandment to obey, but we don't have the ability to obey because of the fall of our first parents into sin, broke our obedience, then, then we're like in between a rock and a hard place, right? And this is the human condition. We, I don't care how long you've been at life and how smart you are. And if you're honest, the reality is you know that the things you want to do, you don't do. And the things that you don't want to do, you do, right? So what the majority of people do is you know, like try as they might. They can't be good um, because at the end of the day, we, again, we don't really want to. What the majority of people do is they just like they figure out kind of what the truth is and they start suppressing it. They start putting putting the truth away. So Psalm 53, one says it like this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, that's not me. That's the Bible saying that's what fools say. So when you hear somebody say, there's no God, just know the Bible has already designated them as what they are. Now, you don't believe the Bible, you don't care. So it won't even bother you that the Bible calls you a fool. But I feel like I should warn you that what we are told as Christians is that it's a foolish person who says there is no God. That is not somebody to whom I'm going to go for counsel and wisdom, which means that everything else I'm going to say this morning is coming from a place different than that there is no God place. I'm going to come from a there is a God place. They say in their heart there is no God. They're corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is no one who does good. Verse 2 says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after him. They have all fallen away. Together they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. All right, now that means while I may not be a fool left to myself because I do believe in God, I am still part of the category of humanity that is incapable of really rendering obedience to God. And so are you. We're all included in that. The problem then is that none of that excuses us from the obligation to be obedient. Right? Do you see the problem? I can't do it. I'm still required to do it. Be like, uh, well, never mind. I don't need to illustrate it. You guys are smart enough. Genesis 4, 7 tells, uh, 
in the, in the most concise and clear terms what it is that I'm trying to illuminate for you. So in Genesis 4, <clears throat> what you have is after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin and all of creation coming under the corruption of a curse, Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's first two sons, um, each grow up and then they bring an offering, a sacrifice to God. And God, for whatever reason, has regard for Abel's sacrifice, but not for, for Cain's. And, the, you know, the text seems to suggest that maybe Cain's sacrifice was a little bit of an afterthought, like he didn't really put his whole heart into it. Um, <clears throat> and so the fact that God has regard for Abel's sacrifice, but not for Cain's, makes Cain feel sad. And so he begins to sulk about this outcome in his life. Um, which just, I mean, by the by, is never a good solution to the problem of you discovering your own lack of acceptability. When you find, because of the circumstances of your life, you didn't do well enough, sulking is no solution because it'll lead to homicidal thoughts. Um, He's, he's sulking, God shows up, and God asks Cain why he's sulking. But he asks him in a rhetorical way because God immediately answers the question before Cain can even say anything. He says in Genesis 4-7, God says, like, oh, why are you downcast? What's wrong? And he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you but you must overcome it. Uh, so the picture is sin, or you know, like doing the wrong thing, is waiting with bated breath to meet us, and we're told to deal with it. We're told to refuse it. Don't let it in. Don't have a conjugal visit with this feline, demonic thing that God's describing in Genesis 4. In Deuteronomy 10, 12, <clears throat> he says it this way. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. That's the requirement. How are we doing? And if you're like, I think I'm pretty much nailing it. I've got bad news for you. You're just not and yourself deceived. Simultaneously, we have a broken, corrupt nature that, like Cain, would rather not do what's right. So we're hobbled, we're maimed, we're naturally given to doing what is not right. Our desires are contrary to God's commands. So what humanity does, because we know this in our guts at the end of the day, what humanity does is they simply decide that God's existence is a myth and therefore he has no right to be obeyed. If God doesn't exist... Never mind his right to be obeyed. That most certainly doesn't exist, right? So unsurprisingly, the outcome of that kind of reasoning is much of humanity has decided that any authority is a myth. 
I didn't feel like when I was preparing this message, I needed to like carefully outline what it is that I'm saying because I want to believe that everybody has powers of observation and without the news, forget the news and that lying death machine, just what do you see in your day-to-day life? Is it not true that you can observe throughout the course of your day-to-day life, given enough days and enough interaction with the culture, any authority has become a myth. Who do we have to respect? I mean, I, we've got this conscience, I know, and we're the good people, right? Uh, but we can't, all right, and, and we can't snuff that conscience out. So even if you're not one of the good people, and you're, you, know, you admittedly are one of the bad ones, whose authority do you have to respect? And then other than in the quiet moments where we're left with our own thoughts and we know it would be better for us if we were good, whatever that means, uh, it would be better if we obeyed whoever it is that we're supposed to obey. But with God having been deleted, who defines what's good? If there is no God, who defines what's good? And then, so who do we have to obey? Do you see the logic of my line of questioning? Okay, good, because I can't see most of you. Um, Who has the authority to demand your obedience if there's no God and therefore no divine authority? Um, What right, for instance, does a parent have to demand obedience from a child? What right does a boss have to demand obedience from an employee? What right does a cop have to demand obedience from a citizen? What right does the police chief have to demand obedience from the cops? What right does the mayor have to demand obedience from the police chief? What right does the governor have over the mayor? What right does Congress have over the governor? What right does the Senate or the presidency or anybody have? Because increasingly, what you will see is that we live in a culture, it's not totally obvious yet, but we're getting there. We are skirting the edge of a culture which is ruled entirely by brute force. If there are more BLM protesters than police, the police precinct will burn. Haven't we seen that? I mean, again, if you believe the news, which is... If there are more cops than citizens... or more well-armed cops than citizens, especially when they like dress like soldiers, they can beat, choke, tase, shoot. Whatever they want to do, they can go ahead and do it because who's going to stop them? That's a society being ruled by brute force. This is not to protect and to serve. This is to oppress and serve myself. Uh, if there aren't enough brute enforcers to stop then, then people can loot stores as though they own them. And we see that happening. We see authority structures filled with puppets, like the people that we vote for, while folks in dark rooms that get appointed, and we don't even know how they got there, what their names are. We're not even aware of who they are. They're the ones making the decisions about how much we pay in taxes. And then they enforce those decisions with what? The threat of violence. Brute force. We see human dignity begin to reflect this loss of God consciousness. In the end, we don't even know what a man or a woman is anymore because there's no authority to make that decision. All the authority is invested in the individual to decide. 
Whatever Tom says he is, he is. Whatever Sally says she is, she is. We don't want anybody to have designed us and then tell us with authority what we are. So children are taught two opposing ideas simultaneously. First, there can be no standard by which dignity, worthiness, or value is measured. They're taught that, right? Because you're the standard. Whatever you feel, that's your truth. And nobody's allowed to tell you otherwise. Well, that means there's no standard. Do you understand? No standard by which you can measure somebody's dignity, worthiness, or value. So that's truth number one. Truth number two is you should feel happy, fulfilled, and have a good self-esteem. Well, how's that going to work? So what most postmodern humanity does is we become obsessed with feeding cravings that at least in a moment of time make us feel a little bit better. So porn, food, drugs, booze, sexual immorality. We do these things in the hopes that that momentary kind of like mental enjoyment, physical enjoyment of it will, will somehow carry us through the misery of living in this consternated state where we're supposed to feel great because that's what the rest of the culture tells us, but we don't have any standard by which we can decide what is great. Postmodern humanity is beset with untreatable mental disorders, therefore, as a result. So we engage in all this garbage that's unhealthy for us because we don't know any different. And then we are beset with anxiety and depression and personality disorders and eating disorders and relationship disorders and sexual disorders. All the while, deep within, every human being knows that they are guilty of failing Guilty of hypocrisy and guilty of selfishness. In spite of our culture screaming at us that there is no standard, so there is no accountability because there is no authority. Every soul in the sound of my voice knows that whatever fear, shame, and guilt plagues you is inextricably linked to some expectation of judgment. You don't feel fear unless you understand that there's going to be consequences. You don't feel shame unless you understand there's a standard. And you don't feel guilt unless you understand there's a judge who will deal with the decisions and actions that you've made. Because you can't mute the character of God written on your heart, you, and you also can't behave well enough to, like, going forward, rid yourself of fear, shame, and guilt. And neither can you behave well enough to undo the bad things you've already done, right? So instead of human flourishing in the midst of this, you know, uh, supposed freedom we have from authority, what do we actually see happening? Well, what we actually see happening is exponentially worse human misery all the time. So this whole God doesn't exist, do whatever you want approach to life doesn't seem to be working. And I realize I have the bully pulpit. Nobody's going to come out and debate with me about this in this moment, right? So I get to sound super right. And, and I get to get us all worked up into a lather that that's right, society's rejected God and that's why we're better. Not the point. That's not the point at all. 
where disobedience promises personal satisfaction, instead, what we constantly find are these personal hells which we've created by our own evil deeds. Our relationships are strained. Our work is tainted by like periodic fits of laziness. I don't care how diligent you are. Our joy is marred by this like disembodied depression. You ever just think, I don't understand. Like, why am I sad right now? I can't even think of anything that's making me sad. That's what I mean by disembodied. It's, you can't attach it to anything. Or we're like our pleasure is marred by this disembodied anger. I don't know why I'm in such a bad mood. I just woke up in a bad mood today. Or our satisfaction is marred by this, this disembodied anxiousness. I'm afraid and I don't know why. Like there's nobody hunting me that I know of. But I feel like I might die at any moment. And so you start going on the internet and looking up your symptoms, right? And that doesn't help. That makes it worse. And listen, it's okay. If you disagree with me, that's okay. It's not as if in our psychological economy there's any room for some guy that studies the Bible and teaches it to have authority either. So why shouldn't you disagree with me? What difference does it make? I'm not telling you these things because I need you to see how right I am. I'm telling you these things because I need you to see how smart I am. No, I'm just joking. Uh, I'm not. What what I'm trying to do is, is make us see afresh that until we yield to God's authority, all we're gonna find are ashes and sorrow where we expected to find beauty and satisfaction. God is telling children to obey their parents in Colossians 3, 20 through 24, right? The Bible is saying that anyway. God's telling employees to obey their bosses. So that's that whole bond servants thing, like chill out. It, it, it's just, it is what it is. They didn't have employee, employer culture when this was written. We do now. So it's, Employees and bosses. Humanity has responded to God telling children to obey their parents and employees to obey their employers and people to obey the civil magistrates. Humanity has responded by just saying, well, God doesn't exist. So you look at the outcome and you tell me what's happening. Do we need more pharmaceutical intervention so we can get these kids to sit still in school for nine hours a day? That was an exaggeration. It's not nine, right? And they don't have to sit still the whole time, but kind of. Put kids on drugs so they'll obey. Obey what? Obey who? Obey why? What authority do you have to decide that kids should sit still? Put adults on drugs so they'll work harder. Counterman that ADHD. Why? Why should they obey? We need universal basic income, then nobody would have to work. What gives anyone the right to have authority over them? Oh, you're bigger, you're richer, you're more powerful. So brute force, like I said, that's it. That's the measure. But what if God is real and this is his word? What if in spite of our sin, in spite of our shame, in spite of our fear, in spite of our guilt, God chose to intervene in the mess? 
That might change something, right? What if in order to rescue us from the very hell that we've constructed for ourselves by our disobedience and rebellion, what if God chose to come and live among us, demonstrating for us that our deepest satisfaction can only be found in obedience, that our greatest joy can be experienced when we do what he has prescribed rather than whatever we want. What if God, knowing that we are literally designed to be in relationship with him, sought us out in the midst of our mess? What if that happened? So he becomes like us, except for our corrupt nature. He teaches us the truth. He heals the sick. He casts out the very demons that we've invited in. He gives sight, hearing, freedom, where there was blindness, deafness, and slavery. What if on top of that, he suffered the consequences of your sin, your disobedience, my disobedience, so that we could be free from fear, shame, and guilt. This is all I can promise you. I'm not going to stand up here and say, if you just come down and believe in Jesus, pray this prayer with me, your life is going to be so much better. You're going to have money and health. And, and why I have to say it in that accent is because that's what all those guys generally sound like. right? <laughs> all that I can promise you is that if you come to Christ, the one who entered the mess in order to redeem us, he can and will rid you of fear, shame, and guilt. Not right away, not perfectly forever, but the process begins and unfolds for the rest of your life where you are drawn out of darkness into light, out of loneliness into fellowship, out of isolation into companionship. That deals with fear, shame, and guilt, believe me. What if the gospel commandment, th think about this, because this is where we, oh man, the church, has the church ever gotten it wrong? But not me. Uh, so annoying that I just said that. Um, but it's true, like for a, for a long time, if, if I could stand outside the grocery store and just ask people, what is the gospel? Forget that. If I went around this room and asked all of you, what is the gospel? I bet we would get some wrong answers. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is, is um, be good and God will accept you. That's what people think it is. What if the gospel isn't, what if it isn't be moral but the commandment is actually believe in Jesus Christ and so be saved from your sin. What if that were the commandment? So we think commandments, 10 commandments, love the Lord your God, don't take his name in vain, don't have any idols, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't murder, don't have adultery, right? That's morality. Agreed, things will be better for humanity if we go that route than the one that we're currently on. However, <coughs> what the gospel says is, Believe in Jesus Christ and so be given a new heart with new desires. Be changed from the inside out. That's the promise of the gospel. It's not just escape the relentless feeling that you're not good enough. The promise of the gospel is be deeply loved by the one who made you.
The gospel hope is not if you work hard enough, you'll be accepted. Gospel hope is believe and you'll be welcomed. Gospel consequence is not now you don't have to be afraid of hell. Mm -mm. Gospel consequence is now you'll never be alone. Now you'll never be rejected. Now you'll never be despised. All right, so let's just say for sake of discussion, I embrace that truth as a father as a dad of a son and two daughters. Now I can tell my children to obey me because I'm obeying God. Now I can tell my children to obey me because I want them to have the blessing of deep satisfaction and joy. I can tell my children to obey me because they will have already seen that their dad is for them. I'm not just like legislating my preferences as a father. I'm teaching them what's reasonable and moral. My authority will not flow from my ability to dominate them in size or strength. My authority will flow from my own obedience to God. So yes, God commands children to obey their parents. Yes, God commands adults to be obedient to civil authority. Yes, God commands employees to be obedient to their employers, but not like slaves in fear. That's not what God says to do. Rather, as though we're really being obedient to him. That's what he commands. And he gives the commandments to those authority holders as well, right? Because it says, children, obey your parents. And so you should. But it also says, fathers and mothers, it's everywhere implied, right? Don't provoke your children. Everybody looks down at their knees in shame. Because if you're not a son or a daughter that's failing to obey, you are a father or a mother who has been a provocation to your own kids. And if you don't think you have, let me just like give you three different expressions of unreasonable authority. Because understand this, the Bible is being very clear. Obedience isn't encouraged by unreasonable, unhealthy authority. So sucky parent number one. Absent parents. I mean, maybe they're missing altogether. Maybe they're just emotionally absent. This is so important. Can everybody hear me? Really? How do you know everybody can hear me? <laughs> absent parents who demand obedience, think about this. God does not demand obedience without relationship. God doesn't do that. But you think you can? I'm not excusing disobedience in your kids. I'm pointing out that's a provocation for them. You're provoking them. You're inviting rebellion, all right? So that's sucky parent number one, absent. Sucky parent number two is abusive parents. Maybe emotionally, maybe mentally, perhaps physically, which includes then the other two and is thus the worst. You don't just make obedience difficult for your children if you abuse them. You surrender your right to be obeyed. 
Yeah, you do. Yeah, because there's a mandate to protect life that supersedes the commandment to the child to obey. So children who are being abused should be rescued from their abuser, and the one who abused them should be punished. Using authority, using authority to satisfy a twisted, homicidal, or sexually devious desire is not the unforgivable sin, but the damage that it does, the hell that you create by it echoes for generations. The abuse of authority paints a blasphemous picture of God. What consequences do you suppose that invites? So that's two. Third, my favorite one because this is the net that catches everybody else, right? Overbearing, curling, helicopter parents. Uh, Some of you are like, Curling. Yeah. You know, this, it became an Olympic sport in the 1990s. They got the thing and the rock, and they kick off with their foot a certain speed, and they aim the rock, and they let it go, right? That's us as parents. Kid comes out, we aim them, and away they go. What curling parents do is they're the ones that are in front of the rock, smoothing out the path forward so that the child goes exactly where they want, right? Helicopter parents, just always hovering around, making sure the child doesn't do anything that I disagree with, making sure the child doesn't do anything dangerous, making sure no harm comes to the child no matter what. Overbearing parents, they're constantly critical. Like, you find something wrong with a three-year-old's finger painting. (laughs) That's not the way I would have done it. You're no Picasso, right? Over, or maybe you are, actually. Overbearing parents create a situation where it's like, why bother obeying if they're never going to be obedient enough? I'll just give up. Forget it. These spawn rebellion because children need some semblance of autonomy. In in reality, the rebellion of children, like of curling and helicopter parents, may be the grossest for a couple of reasons. It's these children, uh, well, it's these parents that produce children who are most kind of like devious. And it's because those sins of those kids, like the children learn early on that I have to conceal them really well. Because someone's always watching. Someone's always hovering. Come on. How many shows about weird homeschool cults do there have to be before we go, hmm, why are all these young men coming out sexually deviant? That's weird. Molesting their sisters. That's strange. Sure, there's no connection to how they were raised. I mean, it's baffling behavior, isn't it, from young men who've been homeschooled and harassed into utter subservience by cult-like oversight. It's so weird that they then engage in things that are so dark, we cover our mouths. Second, preventing any and all harm to your kid produces children who are incapable of handling any and all difficulty. So they never leave. They fail to launch. 
Uh, it's very tempting for me to stand up here and now begin to unroll my agenda for how you should raise your kids, but note with admiration that I haven't done that. <laughs> Fathers and mothers do not provoke your children. Amen? Okay. <laughs> Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. This is verse 22, right? With sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Three, uh, 23 says, whatever you do, <clears throat> work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. The principle Colossians is teaching you is this. Whomever has authority over you at the moment, the one who you are ultimately obeying is God. Okay? And he is reasonable. So we should obey as though our obedience is to the one who redeems us not the one who tells us to take out the trash because he already saw that we were going to do that anyway. Your obedience is to God. So it can be just as joyful with me tormenting you as if I didn't. Because God sees and knows and loves an obedient heart. And parents, I mean, we should exercise our authority with the understanding that we're going to give an account to him too, right? Okay, which means we do it in a redemptive, loving manner. So my children know that I'm trying to irritate them in love. <laughs> comes from a good place in my heart. Um, <clears throat> so once a month, this family takes a few minutes at the end of our worship service to do something Jesus prescribed. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. <clears throat> that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, <clears throat> you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine themselves then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. So Jesus, in summary, is aware of how prone we are to forget, lose sight, drift. The practice uh, of observing Lord's Supper is one of the only two rituals the church is commanded to observe. We don't even call them rituals. Generally, we call them sacraments or ordinances, but they're rituals. We're commanded to observe this, and baptism is the other one. If you go to another church that has a few dozen other rituals, I just want to assure you, I've searched the scriptures carefully. I haven't seen any of those. So maybe they're just traditions that have been just some, you know, anyway, okay. What we're going to do is we're going to put on a little music uh, because I like to cover the shuffling of feet and the smacking of lips and the blowing of noses and coughing. We'll just take a moment to pray and thank Jesus for his work of redemption. Everybody in here who knows the Lord Jesus will take a moment and pray and thank him. Then we're going to gather as families and take the cup and the bread and eat and drink to remember him. Now, the bread represents the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken to pay the penalty for our sins. 
the cup of juice represents the blood of Christ, which was spilled to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you don't have a biological family here with you to gather with, or you're just not comfortable uh, administering this ordinance to your family, you just jump in with one of us. You tuck in with any family here and we will receive you, okay? Um, But first, I want you to sit for a couple of moments and contemplate. And, And here, let me suggest a pair of questions for you to answer. Do I believe that Jesus is Lord of my life? Does my life look like I believe that? Do I believe that Jesus is Lord of my life? And does my life look like I believe that? And if the answers aren't yes, then let me invite you to take this time to just sit and pray. Skip the cup and the bread today. We all have times when we've been adrift, right? Okay. When we're adrift, we need to do business with God. So there's no one here that's like, I haven't stationed anybody up behind the lights where you can't see them. Oh, they didn't go. Nobody here is going to do that. You can even come down with your family and pray with them. You can come down and pray with my family. Just don't take the bread. Don't take the juice. If you know you aren't a Christian, if you've never believed the gospel, then we encourage you for sure to refrain from eating and drinking, for you have nothing yet to remember. And if this morning, for the first time, you think something has changed in your heart, you're like, oh man, I want to cry out to Jesus for salvation, then take this time to pray something like this, right? Lord, I'm a mess. I hear what this... Uh, weird, short, bald-headed Bible teacher has been saying, and some of it makes sense to me. I see myself in what the Bible is saying, and I think I see you offering to save me. This is an honest prayer. I'm not sure, but here's what I think. Lord, help me. I don't want to live separated from the one who made me. I want to be known by you, and I want to know you. If you have questions about what I've said this morning, you come grab me after we get done with prayer requests in a few minutes. You grab one of the other elders and we can talk. I want to answer your questions. Whether you sit, whether you come, whether you take, whether you eat and drink, doesn't matter to me. But it matters to God. And I don't want you to eat and drink judgment to yourself. So do this in right relationship with him. And if you can't, stay put. Spend some time praying and thinking. All right, let me pray and we'll turn on the music.